So I kind of mentioned last time that we were going to, Lord willing, I think, <laughs> move into a um, series. Yeah, exactly. We're going to start the book of Matthew. <laughs> Didn't know if you've ever read it. Um, but we had been mentioning about the possibility of a uh, sermon series that I had titled um, Radical Grace, and it really carries off of and from everything that we taught about in uh, the book of Matthew. And it's something that, as I've gone through the book of Matthew, I've thought we needed to talk about. Um, and in recent um, months, it's kind of hit me a little bit uh, more about what it looks like to be radically changed by the grace of God and, and, and what that looks like to people. You know, we have these images and we, we've probably been preached to and talked about all our lives about how we are a changed people and we're a new creation and we're peculiar in the sense that we are a precious set apart item and how we are going to be countercultural and different to the world and all these things. And sometimes I think that's kind of the, the, the sum total image that we get of what it means to be different, okay? We just think, oh, well, it means we don't cuss like everybody else or we don't watch these movies like everybody else or we don't, whatever it may be, we don't entertain ourselves in the same ways. And that might be some of the peculiarity to our actions and our lives, but that is not the, the total of what being radically changed by the grace of God is, it's not just some like surface level moralism, okay? Um, it's, it, it is much more profound than that. And it's important for us to grasp that because if we don't, then what we do is we revert it to just a surface level moralism. It's just a religious moral institution. And we label it by grace and we talk about how it changes your lives. But the, the total of it that we look at is it changes your lives in the sense that, well, you're going to watch different movies now. You're only going to get up to the PG-13 level and stop. And that's how much the grace of God changed you. And that's not the example that you get in the Bible. In fact, you get much more profound change in our daily lives and who we are. I mean, we are recreated. We are a new creature, something completely different. It's not a revision of the old. It is a new creature. It's this thing where you had an old one and now you got a new one. It's different. It looks different. It acts different. It walks and talks differently. It has different drives, ambitions, desires. There's still some of that old that's hanging around there, but ultimately you are a new creation. That's how the Bible describes us. So this radical grace that changes us has a profound effect on us. And what you see is the characters that are in the Bible that speak of the radical transformation they've gone through through grace. They've gone through some stuff. They've come from some stuff. It also causes us to be very, very humble, hopefully, in our opinions and our views of other people. Because, see, the other tendency that we have with this whole kind of religious moralism thing that can happen is that we can get very much like the Pharisees and everybody that we preached on for three years. That when we get on, as we would say, this side of grace, we have the ability to look at others and start going, hmm, I don't know if you really fit in. Start looking at sins of people and going, eh, well... I know we talk about grace, but there's certain things that are unforgivable. There are certain things that are unchangeable. 
or there are certain sins that you commit or actions that you do that will permanently label you as X, Y, or Z, and you must be treated different the rest of your life. And the problem is, is that radical grace calls us in completely the opposite direction from that. Rather, what you're going to find in a radical grace transformation is the very people you would look at and say, there is no way on this earth that you could be accepted into this holy, believing group of people. Those are the people that God goes, just watch me put them in your group and not only put them in there, put them at the head of your group. And I'm doing it so you'll look at them and go, well, wow, if God can do that to them, then praise be to God, this must be a pretty miraculous grace. And what I would challenge is for us to remember that this is like all of our stories. Now, I know there are some of us who grow up in the church and never move from that path. And I get that. I know that exists. Now, I mean, we all still can go back to, well, you're still a sinner. You're still, you know, you still have this nature. You still have all these things. You're still a liar. You're still a cheater. You still got all that stuff inside of you. But there are people who grow up in the church, grow up following Christ, and never really have any major course corrections. And then there's a whole lot of other people who have their lives corrected out of prostitution, drug abuse, abuse of other people immoral sexual behaviors, all sorts of things that they come out of that God miraculously changes them through radical grace. And we look at them and go, praise be to God that he can change even me. And then hopefully our response is not one of, well, you know, we know God can really change you and we know God can really work in your life. And obviously you're a different person than you were, but you're kind of on probation in my mind, until you get to a certain point, until you've really proven yourself to be changed by grace, until you've really shown that your repentance was genuine and we're still, we're still worried about you and maybe what you'll slide back into. And so I'm just thinking that maybe we need to kind of, you know, you, you're in, but you're on the side bench. You're in where we're, we're going to watch you for a period of time until we deem that you are acceptable enough to be fully included. What I'd say is radical grace calls us to accept a lot of people that in any other circumstance we would find unacceptable. So as we go through this, I'm not sure where the end point on this is. Okay, I know I'm starting with the book of Galatians. It may go past that. But what I found in the book of Galatians is that Paul writing to the church at Galatia, there was a big issue with very similar problems okay we already talked as we were going through matthew and we were talking about the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection we talked about paul making the point that it was the resurrection of jesus christ it was the power of his resurrection and the grace of god that made me who i am he actually said but by the grace of god i am who i am okay so he's already made this point that paul believes in the radical transformative power of the grace of god amen Paul, of all people, agrees with this. Paul preached this. Paul probably preached this more than anybody else in the Bible because Paul experienced it firsthand, okay? And that's why it's, it's so profound when you read some of his letters and you're, you're looking at them through that lens because Paul is coming back going, look, guys, I know and believe in the power of radical grace, of the radical grace of God because 
I am a prime example of the radical grace of God and how changing it can be in someone's life. So he's already stated that in the Corinthian letter. And we, you know, we, we alluded to that when we're talking about the power of the resurrection. But I do want us to understand some key contextual things about this. Number one is that the grace of God is a radical grace, which means it changes profoundly. It causes a shift in a person's life and it makes someone a new creature. Okay. It's also what we just would describe as a costly grace. And the reason I say that is because there's as if, and I really do encourage you and I know I've said it before, but you really do need to. You know, pick up a document, not a documentary, but a biography of um, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, because he was a phenomenal um, leader in the church, and his story and everything that he came through through Nazi Germany and everything is just uh, amazing. And his he coined this phrase of costly grace versus cheap grace. Okay. And what he was kind of combating was costly grace is one that causes the person to have to give something up. Okay. Costly grace is something that causes the person to have to give something up. It's to move in a direction that is not expected or even desired in some cases. And the new creation is a fantastic one, but it comes at the cost of losing the old creation with all of its connections, relationships, and experiences. So the costliness of this grace is that it actually causes you to have to lose something. And that's what Jesus said, right? If you're going to follow me, lay down your life. If you're going to find your life, lose your life. If you're going to take up your cross, you have to lay down what you previously held on to. So it calls the, the new creation calls the laying down of the old creation, which meant all the relationships, all the experiences, all the ties, everything that we prized so much in our former life. Costly grace causes you to have to lay that down. It says that's not where you're still living. You can't continue in that. You can't hold on to those things. I mean, you even had a guy coming up to Jesus saying, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus is like, dude, let the dead bury the dead. Like you've got a, you got a greater calling here. So it calls it, it costs us something. Okay. Cheap grace doesn't cost you anything. And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer argued against is you had these churches, especially in Nazi Germany, that were just kind of acquiescing to, you know, the culture and were acquiescing really to the national government, really giving into what they called them and made them do. And they were preaching a grace, but it was kind of like this cheap grace of, you know, uh, life shouldn't really be disturbed. You should be happy. You should be fulfilled. You should not have to give anything up. It was all this kind of sunshine and roses theology. Problem is, that does not line up with what Jesus taught. And as we have spent three years talking, and you've heard me say plenty of times, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have to do what Jesus said, right? So if Jesus says, my grace is a costly grace, that means you have to give something up, then we need to give something up. Any gospel that preaches any other grace is a false gospel. Because it doesn't line up with what Jesus taught. If it doesn't line up with what Jesus taught, then it really can't be the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that just makes sense. So you have a grace, so to speak, of Phariseeism that is in existence where you have its perfect in its legalism, its harsh in its execution, 
and it's lacking in its forgiveness. And you also have a grace of liberalism, which is perfect in its ignorance, excellent in its lack of commitment, and forgiving in its non-committal. Those are kind of cheap forms of grace. It's preached as if it has some kind of transformative effect. It's preached as if, but the liberal kind of grace, you, know, you don't non-committal. It's not something that really requires you to do anything. It's not calling you out into obedience. It's not imploring that you follow in what Christ taught. But there's just as detrimental side of grace that is perfect in its legalism. That's the one that I said was a pharisaical grace. A grace that's preached, but there's a lot of it's this, it's the practice, it's the doctrine, it's the knowledge, it's the whatever. But it's not really about Jesus. It's just about doing all the right stuff and doing it perfectly. So both of these are, as we said before, kind of two sides of the same coin, and it's a really bad coin. Otherwise, you have a Jesus-centered grace, which calls you to take up your cross and follow him. It's costly. It requires something of you. It's not something that we just get to kind of enjoy in life and never really commit to. Jesus said, no, this is this is my life. This is what I've died for for you. So let's give a definition of radical. So radical can be especially of change or action relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. It is far-reaching and thorough. That's what it means to have something radically changed. They used to do things called radical excisions. Or, you know, the only one that's coming to my head right now is a radical prostatectomy, which we're not going to get into. But you know what that meant? It meant that everything came out. It was radical. Everything was removed versus like a partial, okay? If I had a radical removal of something, everything is cut out and removed. Versus a partial which would be you could take half of it, the diseased portion of it, and you could leave the rest. Radical was something that meant total, far-reaching, and thorough. It, it completely changed whatever you were affecting. Okay? It can also mean advocating or based on thorough or complete political or social change, which is sometimes how we interpret it today. Okay? If you have someone who's a radical, they're what? They're a fanatic. That whichever way, they're either a fanatical left wing, a fanatical right wing, die hard, militant, extremist. So it's this idea of in advocation or in practice, again, you're radical, you're completely out on the fringe. So what we gather by both those definitions is kind of how we are to behave as well as who we are. We have had a radical change by grace, which means we are a new creature, completely remade. It's far-reaching and thorough what God has done to us. But also our attitude and our actions also are called to be radical. Which means our response to certain things is going to be profoundly out there compared to how the rest of the world would interpret it. You know, we're the ones who are commanded to love your enemies. That is radical. Jesus was radical when he advocated for it because you had this whole religious tradition of love your neighbors and hate your enemies. 
And they thought that was the norm. That was the accepted norm. And Jesus is going, no, I got something radical to lay on you. You love everybody, including and sometimes to an, an extreme degree more your enemy. They're all going, whoa, that's crazy. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm calling you to something crazy. I'm calling you to something radical. I'm changing you to be radical. You're going to be far-reaching and out on the fringe because guess what? I am not of this world and I'm calling you to be not of this world. It's going to be radical. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be considered to be ridiculous to the world, but it's going to be what I have called you to do. So then we dive in to the book of Galatians. Now, the church at Galatia... And if I had a TV up here, I could pop up a map so you could see it. But, you know, if you look at modern day Turkey and you've kind of got, you know, Constantinople and everything over here. Galatia's kind of right in the middle. All right. You, you wove down around to get down to Jerusalem. Okay, so Galatia's pretty far removed from Jerusalem. It's kind of out here in the middle of what is now modern day Turkey. What they would have called Asia Minor in this area. Back in biblical times. It's a large area. There was a large church there. But I want us to identify right off the bat what the purpose of the letter to the church at Galatia was. Okay? Because I know you've probably heard like a million sermons about this. The book of Galatians, book of Ephesians, book of Philippians and Thessalonians. And those are awesome, powerful letters that Paul was writing to the churches to make sure they are either reorienting or remaining oriented to the central message, which was coincidentally enough, the radical grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's why I mean, very first chapter of Ephesians, he's just like, let me just tell you about the grace of God. You know, and then he goes into Philippians. Let me remind you about the grace of God. Here, he starts off, he says, let's get you back to the grace of God. Okay. Many people, I think, when we read this book, and probably, you know, again, as you read through things, it's really interesting. You read through books of the Bible, you read through passages, and it always is profound to me how you can go from reading it 10, 20, 30 years ago, not catching things, getting through it, read it a thousand more times. All of a sudden, one day, you're just like, oh, I've never seen that before. Where did that verse come from? I didn't think, there, I didn't think that 10th verse existed. So it's always profound to me how I can read, read back through things and go, man, I never picked that up. But as I've kind of been reading through these letters of Paul, and the reason I, I focused on Paul so much is because Paul was just this prime example of the radical grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, he just, he embodies it. And in every letter, he brings it up. But here in the book of Galatians, you know, there's, there's a lot of times people will borrow the phrase out of this book about another gospel and use it as kind of a means to justify their own theology and why every other theology is wrong. Okay? So they'll come out and say, oh, well, this person's just, they're just preaching another gospel because theirs is different than mine. And this one's another gospel. And they make it out like that's what Paul was doing. Like somebody was taking the gospel... And then was kind of adding to it and changing things and tweaking things a little bit to make it another gospel to suit their personal ambitions. And what I want to really impress on you is that is not what's going on in this church. What's going on in this church is people are removing Jesus Christ and the cross and re-implanting the Judaic law 
to say that's how salvation is obtained. Again, sometimes it's, it's looked at as like this is a Jesus plus thing, but they were very much removing Jesus out of the equation. And the reason I say that is because we talked about this towards the end of the Matthew series. At the end of this book in chapter 6, Paul will make a point. They are re-implanting circumcision to remove the offense of the cross so that they don't get persecuted for the cross like Paul was. Okay, So they weren't adding to it. They weren't saying, oh, the cross is good, Jesus is great, you just need to be circumcised. No, they were saying circumcision supersedes the cross and everything Jesus did. In fact, let's get the cross out of the way because it's kind of getting us in trouble in places. So these Jews were coming back to reinstitute Judaism, okay? And Judaism at this point is not on board with Jesus, okay? So when you get these pictures in this book, that... That is what Paul is arguing the entire book. He said, guys, y'all are trying to put Jewish Judaism back in here and it doesn't work. It was accomplished and fulfilled like it's past tense. Jesus settled all that. And we talked about this the first time I came. It's like you're trying to go back to Judaism. And I'm saying that's like been done. You've been delivered from all that. So we have to remember that this book is pointed at return these people okay this church here who paul has kind of been instrumental in founding are trying to return as it says to the base things of this world you're going to catch that phrase come up multiple times in this so when he first starts off he says paul an apostle not of men neither by man but by jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren which are with me to the churches of galatia grace be to you and peace from god the father and from the lord jesus christ who has given himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He, he launches off in the very beginning to identify number one, how he became an apostle. Number two, who this is all about, Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ had done for us. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins For the purpose that he might deliver us from this present evil, and it says world, but all you got to do is go to the middle and it'll talk about age there. And what that's implying or talking about is that it's not just this natural context that we're in. He's not just talking about the resurrection. He's not just talking about being delivered from evil people. He's talking about, as he'll go into another area and describe it, the base Things of this world, the evil, corrupt things of this world. And coincidentally and shockingly enough, the thing he's addressing when he's saying that is not like prostitution and things out here in the totality. He's actually addressing the base things of this world being the law. So he goes through here to point out, he says, you were delivered from these things. That was a worldly thing that I put in place to hold you in place. Till Jesus came. And then Jesus was the fulfillment of all this. Jesus was the one that the promise was made to. Jesus was the one that achieved everything. The law that you're going back to, as you know, he'll describe there in, in a couple of chapters, was a schoolmaster, which just meant it was just a tutor. It was someone that was mainly centered around men and men's traditions and men's organizations and men. I mean, it was started by Moses. It was perpetuated by men over and over and over and over again. It was ordained of God. It was created by God. But it was an organization that was centered around men performing the tasks that God had commanded them to do. 
Okay? And he said, it was there just to hold the place, just to guide, keep, and direct you until ultimately Jesus got here, who was the ultimate finisher of all things. He's the one that achieved it. That's why he says, it's not by the law that you obtain righteousness. It's not by the law that your sins were atoned for. He's like, it was never intended to be that. All it was was a placeholder to keep you in place until Jesus came to actually fulfill everything. So he makes the point that he's saying, you are returning back to these base things of this evil age. You're returning back to man-made man-reliant religion versus what I had called you into, guys, which was faith-based relationship with Christ. It's like Christ fulfilled all this. Christ pulled you into this. Christ created this place for you. And now you're trying to ease back into these things that your traditions and your religion have kept going for Hundreds of years. You're, you're easing back into the things of the world. So he says, I don't want you departing from this. I don't want you going back. Jesus died for your sins to deliver you from this. So it is important to grab that because he'll, he'll reiterate this over and over again. And actually, if you don't grab that in the beginning, the entire rest of the book looks very fragmented and doesn't make sense. So get here, he's not just talking about delivering you from your sins, as in I want you to be a better person. He's also talking about delivering you from the entrapping things of this present age. And that goes through every age that this present age is talking about. So he says, I have called you out of this world. I have died to bring you out of this world. We're not just talking about something at the resurrection. We're talking about now. The present age. And it's not just that you will live a more moral life. It's actually to bring you out of the trappings of man-made religion, man-made self-justification. That's what they were putting back in. They were saying, no, like what Christ did on the cross, let's really get that out of the way because that's really problematic and people don't like it. And it's getting us persecuted. Instead, let's get back to something that you, is, you can really grab hold of and is tangible. Let's bring back in this Jewish religion. Let's start making it again about circumcision and who is and who isn't circumcised. And guess what? We're in Galatia. All right. We are not in Jerusalem. We're in Galatia, which had a large population of Gentiles. And Paul is the preacher to the Gentiles. And he's going, guys, you know, put the scissors away. That's not what saves you. Okay. He's like, Jesus has already fulfilled all these things. You're actually delivered from the very thing that they are trying to put on you. Christ died to deliver you from that. He, he died to deliver you from the man-based institutions that centered around natural things like, again, circumcision in and of itself. He said, you've been, you've been freed from all that. You've been delivered from all that stuff. But not just that, not just Judaism, but every entrapping false doctrine, every entrapping false god, every entrapping false anything that tries to make you feel like you are good, right, and fulfilled. Whether that was in your 
hedonistic, heathenistic, you know, whatever things you worshiped before, whether that is in your prostitution or whether that was in your reveling, your all your parties, everything that you went to, or it's in your traditional religious experiences. He's like, Christ gave you this perfect thing that was relationship with him that freed you from all this, showed you exactly what reality was, gave you purpose, hope, and life fulfilled you in in the way that none of these other things could. So when you look at this, the main character in this story is Paul. Paul puts himself as the main character. He actually goes forward and says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Notice as he's laying it out there, he's not talking about you have been continuing to follow Jesus Christ and added something to it. He's saying, no, you have been removed from him who has called you into this. We have now moved away from Christ in this and we've moved back to Jewish law. We've moved back to what the Pharisees championed over and over again when Jesus was attacking them. And he's going, well, we have Moses. We are of the lineage of Moses. We follow Moses. And I mean, you know, Jesus even gave him a little credit and said, yeah, they're teaching right. They teach from the seed of Moses. They're doing what they should do. They're following what God ordained. It's just their actions are a little bit off. You know, their actions don't follow through what Moses told them to do. But man, they're teaching from the right book. He says, you have been, you, you, you are removing, you are moving away from him who has called you into all this. You're moving away from him that has called you into the grace of Christ. And you're moving into this other gospel, which he says is not another gospel, which is basically the way of basically saying you have moved away from the gospel and now you're following this other thing. Okay. It's not a gospel. It's not what Jesus... There's, there is only one gospel. We do grasp that, right? There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus Christ said, okay? That's it. Anything else that tries to manipulate, change, move, or add to that is not following the gospel. It's not another gospel. It's not a gospel, period, Okay? Anything that changes what Jesus said or makes what Jesus said out to be something that he didn't say is just not a gospel, okay? Because the only gospel that exists that teaches us about what Jesus said is what Jesus said. I know I keep going back and forth with that, but do we get that? So anything you hear, anything that might be preached to you that takes what Jesus said and starts making addendums to it or starts trying to explain kind of, well, Jesus said that, but in reality, that's not what he meant. Or I know Jesus said that this is it, but you know, really in all, no, you're, you're, you're not preaching what Jesus said. Then you're caveating Jesus. And I'm just going to have to break it to you. Jesus does not need your help. Jesus does not need you to caveat his message. Jesus does not need you to try to explain away the clear teachings that he made. He just needs you to believe him and obey him and do what he told you to do. So the the caveating is what the Pharisees did. Well, I know it's said that we're supposed to honor our father and mother, but we can kind of, you know, make a little adjustments here and things work out a little bit better, right? 
Jesus said, yes, congratulations. You have basically made null what God commanded you to do. So it's not that you're keeping the law, but just with a caveat is that you're not really keeping the law in this situation. So that's what he's getting at here. He's not saying it's another gospel, like there's multiple gospels or there's multiple flavors of the gospel, or you can add a little bit here and have the gospel still, but it, no, it's not a gospel. That's why he says it's not another gospel. There's no such thing as another gospel. There's only one gospel. He says, and now what you're basically doing is following not the gospel. You're not following what Jesus said. You're not following what Jesus did. You have been pulled back to following what your pharisaical rabbis have been telling you is what's more important. And I love Paul because Paul is just has the most fascinating story. And I know we've all read Paul's story. We know Paul's story. We've heard it a thousand times. But I mean, really seriously consider Paul. Paul has the most fascinating story. Paul, I mean, it's like God chose him on purpose, okay? And I know that sounds funny, but I mean, let's get it. Paul, it's just like when Jesus chose the apostles he chose. It's like he chose them on purpose. And I mean that in both sense of the word. He chose them on purpose because he chose to do so. But also he chose them on purpose because there was people that were broken up, messed up, and unacceptable to the vast religious majority who looked down their noses at them. And Jesus was like, yeah, that's my, that's my, my apostle. In fact, in one of them, it's my chief apostle. Okay? This is, my, this is my dude. This is the one that I chose. That tax collector guy who y'all all hate? Yeah, I chose him. That prostitute? Yeah, I chose her. The one that had seven demons? Yeah, I chose her too. And guess what? She actually was a little more faithful than everybody else. Here he chooses Paul. And it's such a perfect choice. He's like the Jew of the Jews and a murderer at the same time. I mean, you can't get a Hollywood redemption story that plays out any better than that, okay? I mean, even you go back to David, it's like, yeah, David is. Paul is the greatest example of radical grace, like, bar none. You got a guy that not only was a full-out devout Jew, but was a murderer, And not just a murderer of some people, a murderer of Christians. Like of all the people to choose to put as the apostle to go spread the word of Jesus Christ and establish churches. You got the guy that had people killed for churches. Okay. You got the guy who was a murderer. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. You could not have picked a better person to champion the cause of Jesus Christ. And you go, well, that's a weird choice. You're going to pick someone. Why didn't you pick someone like Apollos to come in this? He has a nice little gradual, you know, holy story. You know, Apollos comes up, joins up with John, goes out preaching. You know, Priscilla and Aquila just kind of, you know, tweak him a little bit. He takes off, man. You got him as one of the ones listed in 1 Corinthians as one of the main leaders of the church that they're all kind of buddying up with. I mean, Apollos is a great guy. Doesn't seem like he has any vices. Even Peter, you know, a little rough around the edges, a little gruff fisherman guy. But man, that's blue collar hard worker. Cuts a dude's ear off. But I mean, you know, can you blame him? 
Paul is this perfect example of the miraculous saving power of the radical grace of God. He was an ambitious, devout Jew. He had lots of family ties, both to Rome and to the Jewish culture. He had lots of connections. You know, he'll make the point that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, who was this very respectable guy who, you know, back in Acts, they actually go to and they're like, hey, what should we do with these Christians? And Gamaliel's like, well, let me give you my wise counsel. And they all took it. So Gamaliel was like the dude. And and Paul's going, I, well, you know, I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Look who I had as my teacher. You know, look who I can claim. Paul had a lot of claims of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day. Up and coming in the Pharisee circles. I mean, he was poised with power and honor. And he was given the honor and the task to defend the faith by killing Christians. So overall, you'd say, well, I mean, he's fairly honorable, right? Wasn't like a hedonist. Wasn't running a drug ring to little children at school. Wasn't involved in prostitution. Wasn't, you know, I mean, he's, he's actually a hyper-religious guy. He was a devout Pharisee. And when you are a devout Pharisee, you are like top of the line. You keep the law to the nth degree. You tithe that cumin and you're tithing that dill and all this. I mean, you are the guy to go to if you're talking about someone observing the righteousness of the law, which Paul will say over in Philippians. I was... I was all over it. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 and 6, it'd say, If there was anyone who had confidence according to the flesh, anyone who could boast about what they had in the flesh, he's like, I'm chief of all of them. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's why I said he's the Jew of the Jews, okay? I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he would say, as pertaining to the law, I was a Pharisee, which was his way of saying, I was perfect in my execution of the law. Because that's what the Pharisees were going for. The Pharisees were the ones who were trying to bring back this wayward, you know, kind of liberal Judaism. They're like, no, the Pharisees were, you don't even spit on a rock on, Sunday, on Saturday because it's like you're doing work. You're making bricks. I mean, that's how crazy fanatical they were. So when he says, as pertaining to keeping the law, he's like, I was a Pharisee. I did better than all y'all. And note how he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as pertaining to the righteousness that is of the law, I was blameless. And I do not discredit Paul in what he is saying. I don't think Paul was being braggadocious, and I don't think Paul was making up stuff. It's like, oh, I was blameless in the law, but I was like, you know, strangling dolphins over here or something. That's not what Paul was doing, okay? Paul says he was blameless, and I have all reasons to believe. What this should highlight and be terrifying to us is he felt he was 100% righteous in what he was doing. This is not someone who's, you know having a gang wars in downtown Birmingham. This is not someone, again, who's selling drugs to little kids and feeling good about it. This is someone who was, quote unquote, keeping the law perfectly while he was consenting to the murder of Christians. They died because of him. So I call him a murderer. He's the one that rounded them up and he's the one that's going, hey boys, why don't you stone Stephen over there? 
And he did it all because of his zeal of God. He was 100% believing that he was 100% right in what he was doing. We can become blinded to the grace of God and allow ourselves because of whatever it may be, traditions, religious activities, whatever things that we can allow ourselves to invade and corrupt our view of God's grace, we can become blinded to it in such a way that we will act in ways that are actually actually contrary to what God's laws would state. And if you say, that does not sound right. I, Paul. Paul felt he was doing 100% correctly. He was saying, well, the Pharisees, I mean, we've all talked, we've had this coming. They are blaspheming. These Christians are blasphemous. Look at what they're saying and doing. They're claiming Jesus was the Son of God. How dare they do that? They felt they were 100% right to kill Christ, and they feel like they're 100% right to kill Christians. Now, again, there's some of them that have ulterior motives, for sure. There's some of them that, again, have twisted the law of God to satisfy their own selfish desires. Paul felt he was doing everything that he was supposed to be doing. The problem is, is that he was hard-hearted and blinded to what the grace of God, the radical grace of God, really looks like. And that's why when he has his encounter with Jesus, it's like everything's changed. Paul's going around now preaching and talking to people and dealing with people and going, man, this is just the grace of God. This is just par for the course. So we have to be really careful that we don't let our traditions, our religious flavor or whatever it may be, cloud our eyes, that we start viewing people or interacting or dealing with people in some way that's actually contrary to how God commands us to act towards people. We can't take love your enemy and caveat it because traditionally that's just not how we are done. Especially if you're starting to blend in some kind of governmental politic thing into it. Okay? God calls us to be radical in our love for people. God calls us to be radical in how we deal with people. All races, all creeds, all everything. He calls us to be radical in that. So we have to be careful we don't let, whether it's politics, whether it's religion, whether it's whatever, shade our view of His radical grace because we're all products of His radical grace. We are who we are because of what He's done for us. So then he kind of closes out this first chapter by saying... Which, well, he goes on to say, which is not another, but be some, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, then what has been preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach another gospel, that man or that you have that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if yet, or if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. 
If I should seek to please men, I cannot be the servant of Christ. But I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Or basically what he's saying is, is that the gospel that I have preached, if anyone preaches any other, let them be accursed. But the gospel that I have preached is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is making the point that in contrast, again, this is why the Judaism thing has to remain at the forefront when we go through this. In contrast to the Jewish teachings and traditions and everything that you're trying to get back into, which is taught by man from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next Paul is saying, guys, this gospel that I first delivered to you, it's, 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 it wasn't that way. I didn't receive it because I went to my rabbi. I received it by Christ, just like all the other apostles and disciples received it by Christ. Christ preached his gospel. They took it and continued to preach the gospel. It was not taught to me in some catechism school. It was not impressed on me by some kind of religious institution. It was a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's story is a little different because he did have actually Jesus appeared to him on the road. Now, it is interesting. It's something that, again, you know, I try to, I, I know it seems like this, but I do try to reorient us to the truth of the situation, okay? As you know from Acts chapter 9, Paul met, was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus called him out and said, it's me, dude. You're, you're, you're persecuting me. I'm your Lord. Case in point, I just struck you down blind, you know, in case you were doubting. I am your Lord and Master. I have been given all authority. You don't have authority of your own. And I'm telling you, you're persecuting me, your Lord and Master. Now, what do you got to say about that? But what happened next? Paul was commanded by Jesus to go see Ananias. Ananias is the guy that preached the gospel to Paul and baptized him. says in Acts chapter 9 and verse, starting in verse 13, even, and what's, what's crazy, again, follow Paul's story. No one's going to believe that Paul is a preacher. He's the last guy you would believe Paul that would be a preacher. In fact, what we're going to get to in the last of this chapter is, he says in verse 23, or I'm sorry, in verse 22, and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which was once, which once he destroyed. And what was their response? They glorified God in me. The radical grace, the radical change that Paul had been through by the grace of God, the people of the church were recognizing, going, was this the dude that persecuted the church? And they're like, yeah, and look what God did to him. And they were going, praise God that they can change Paul into a preacher. So when Ananias hears about it from the Lord, the Lord says, hey, I'm sending Paul to you. You need to, you know, lay hands on him, let him see again, and then preach the gospel to him and baptize him. Ananias goes, are you sure you cross-referenced? 
Are you sure you got the right guy? Because I've been hearing some things about this guy that... I don't know if you know Jesus, but he's kind of been tearing your church apart. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know all about it, but guess what? I've kind of had a little change on Paul. Ananias was the first one to question Paul's authenticity. Ananias is going, seriously, Jesus? Like, are you sure? And, And how effectively did you do this? You know? Do I need to put him on a probationary period? Like, let him come into the house, watch him for a few days, see if his repentance is true, and then kind of move towards, let's get him to be a member, let's baptize him, let's do these things. Is that how this needs to go? Jesus said, absolutely not. I know your doubts about him, but guess what? When I tell you I have changed this brother, I have changed this Brother, now you take him, you lay your hands on him, you preach the gospel to him, and you baptize him because I've got a lot of stuff for him to do. Now let's get going. You know, that's what he tells Ananias. But the Lord said to him, go for he is, as he would say, he is a chosen instrument of mine for the purpose of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I'm going to show him what things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. That's what he tells Ananias. And Ananias is like, well, the Lord told me that I need to. So I guess that's what I'm going to do. And here comes Paul being carried along by his caretakers up to his door, blind as a bat. And Ananias says, brother Saul, the Lord has appeared to me. Or the Lord that appeared to you on the road to Damascus has sent you to me so that you can regain your sight and receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a fantastic testimony. It converted, so to speak, it converted Ananias at this moment. Ananias was a doubter about this. Ananias is going, Jesus, I know you're powerful and I know you're the Lord, but I mean, we're talking about Paul here. Just like, no, just watch. Just watch. Just watch what I've done to him. I mean, Ananias showed up and said, hey, Brother Saul, we got, 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 got a message from you about you from the Lord. You know, we've, so you're here for this purpose. And the scales fall off his eyes. Paul is a believer. Paul is not just a believer. He is an obedient believer. It says that immediately those scales fell off his eyes. He regained his sight. He arose and was baptized. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there for you that Paul did not view baptism as an optional choice. And he did not view it as something he needed to do because it was a good thing for him and would make him feel better about his walk and have a clear conscience with Jesus. That's not why he was baptized. He was baptized because his Lord just struck him blind on the road and said, guess what? You're mine and you're going to do what I say to do. And Paul said, well, I don't guess I have a lot of options here. So when Jesus said, this is my gospel, repent and be baptized. Paul said, well, this is not too hard of a choice. I guess I'm going to repent and I guess I'm going to be baptized. But even more so, what is neat about the story is that he goes on and it says. If I can. Yeah, straightway after he was baptized, he remained certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. So he hung out there in Damascus with them after he was baptized 
And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now that is a fantastic turnaround. From a few days before, declaring that Jesus was not the Son of God, and it was blasphemous to say so, and I'm going to haul you off and have you murdered for this, to now he's in the synagogue saying, no, guys, I've had a little bit of a change of mind. Jesus is the Son of God, and you need to repent. But again, you look at what the response of the people was. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for the intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? The response of the people was, Is this not Paul? Are we confused? But Jesus had changed Paul by his radical grace. Now Paul is a new creature. Now Paul is preaching the very Jesus that he had been denying just a few days before. And it says in what really is is clinching here with Paul, because he goes on, he gives his story. He's talking about his testimony. It says, I, never, I did not receive it from man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation in times past, or my life in times past in the Jews' religions, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and destroyed it, and profited, or I grew in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation." being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. That's one of the key points to take away. Paul will use his story as he's talking to the Roman church as well. When you get over into the Roman church, when he talks about Romans chapter 10, he says that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. This is what he's addressing. He's saying they're zealous people. And they think they're doing right. They're zealously doing these things according to the law as they see it. They have a zeal of God. They've been given the law to bring them up so that they would be a people who were following after God. It's just, you know, there's this little problem. They're actually like murdering people, which is kind of commandment number one. They have this fantastic zeal for Jehovah. Doesn't mean they're all born again. Just means they're following zealously in the traditions or the religion of their fathers. That's what they were commanded to do. But what Paul kind of applies in that is his own story. He says, yeah, I was one of them. I had this same zeal for God and, you know, I was, man, I was getting after it. Laying waste to the church, which I thought was what I was supposed to be doing. Until Christ reoriented me. Now, my zeal is applied in the appropriate way to God's glory. This zeal I had for the things of God is now channeled and manifested into the glory of Jesus Christ. The one who I thought I was doing good in persecuting, I now am doing good in glorifying, in preaching that He is the Son of God. That is radical grace. That is a change in 180 degrees the other direction. That is God taking people like Paul who were so over the top 
and in many ways so far out of bounds and say, no, just watch what I can do with this brother. And of all people, I'm going to choose Paul, who was so zealous in his religion, had that zeal for the things of God as according to the Jewish law was. And he said, I'm going to take him and I'm going to stick him up in front of a bunch of Jews and go, look at now, Paul, and what I have done to him. Look at the change that has been made in his life. Look at how totally I have redirected his ambitions, his desires. And his purpose. The reason that I bring it up. And the reason that we're talking about this. Is because let's just let's just throw this out there. So how do we all feel about murderers? I think brother Todd would probably have a particular point of view on this. Since he's surrounded by such all the time. How do we feel about murderers? Just as a society, as a people, as an individual. How do you typically feel about murderers? How do you feel about adulterers? How do you feel about homosexuals? How do you feel about child abusers? How do you feel about insert sin here? Now, a lot of times what we'll do is those kind of four just to begin with that I listed. Those are ones that are like class A sins. You know, we'll drop down and go, oh, the liar, the cheater, you know, the one that steals. We'll kind of drop that down, you know, but those... Those class A sins, those are some serious sins. I don't give it to you. It is serious sins. <laughs> and there are serious consequences from them. But we get in this mindset that those people are broken people who can never be fixed. And even if they start showing the slightest little bit of religious affiliation, even if they, you know, make things, if they say, oh, yeah, I repent, I believe I'm following Jesus now. How many times have you heard of people in prison make those statements and your immediate gut reaction is, yeah, sure, we'll see how this goes. You're just trying to get out on good behavior. You just know that if you tell me those things, I'll accept you and feel like I'm better about you. We have an initial, which... Comparatively, if someone had been lying before and said that, we would probably have a little less apprehension to it. If someone had been a thief before, we'd probably have a little less apprehension to it. If someone had been addicted to drugs, I mean, there's just there's all these other things that we look at and go, okay, I really believe. I mean, that is what we love to see is people who would say I was addicted to drugs my entire life. But Jesus saved me and changed me. And now look at me and say, yeah, amen. Praise God. People say, yes. And I used to murder people and say. You hang out near the back. In fact, maybe we need some security just for a year, just to watch, just to make sure. There's this perception that we have. And what really it tells us is, is we doubt the transformative power of the radical grace of Jesus Christ. And here's why it's so bad, because Paul in writing a letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 6, will actually say, don't be deceived. And I'm going to use this translation of it because it makes it really, really clear. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, yes, exactly. We only let really good people into the church. 
And such were some of you. You mean there were men practicing homosexuality in the church at Corinth? And such were some of you. You mean there was people that were murderers that you allowed in? Absolutely. You mean you allowed them in with all the drunks and everybody else? Yep. You want to know why? Because of the radical grace of Jesus Christ had changed them. And you know what I also don't see in there? Is Jesus said, or that Paul said, after a probationary period, they were allowed into the kingdom. That's not in there either. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the radical, transformative grace of Jesus Christ. He changes people. All sorts of people. From all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of problems in all sorts of situations. And Paul is like the chief one. Not only a hyper-religious person, but a hyper-religious murderer. And Jesus changed even him. And didn't just change him, but actually put him up to be a preacher. A lot of these people that were listed off here in the Corinth, there's a lot of people today that say, "Mm, not sure if he's ever going to be preacher-worthy. He's disqualified himself from that because of what he's done. There's things in his past that just make it a little bit questionable whether he would be able to be a pastor. And Jesus is going, I kind of did that with Paul. He was killing Christians and now I made him baptize Christians. So what are the, the number one thing we must grab from this? We cannot qualify or quantify who Jesus saves. We cannot judge amongst ourselves who we feel like has been adequately changed by Jesus Christ enough that we can trust him. We don't have the authority that we look at people and say, well, I think even though Jesus has obviously born you again and accepted you, that we're going to have to put you on probation for a little while till we're able to accept you. Instead, we're called to be radical. We're called to love like Jesus loved. And we're called to take people that Jesus has saved, died, delivered, reborn, changed and made new. And call them brothers and sisters. We're the only people in the world that are going to do that. We're the only people in the world that has that kind of love. And Jesus Christ has commanded us to live that way. So may God bless us to work on this.